Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from New York City, where the hurricane has just passed through, coming to us from a mountaintop in Tennessee, uh, where she is communing with whatever one communes with on a mountaintop in Tennessee. We have, of course, Georgetown University's Rosa Brooks. How are you, Rosa? I am very well, David. And coming to us from Washington, D.C., where he's keeping tabs on the government of the United States on behalf of the Financial Times, we have Ed Luce. Hi, Ed. How are you? I'm good. Thanks, David. So, Ed, you and I have become Twitter enemies in the past week. (laughs) Essentially, I would write a column on Afghanistan and Ed would go, I dispute every point in this, but David's not so bad (laughs) Um, or something to that effect. Rosa, have you witnessed this? I have not. I've been driving and flying and moving furniture, which is which is what I do in my day job uh, at the moment. And so I have not been on Twitter. What happened? The whole point of this podcast is you're going to have to choose one of us. (laughs) Oh, no. Why? How how can I choose? This is this is like Helen of Troy's dilemma. And that led to the Trojan War. And that was awful. And, you know, I don't think I can choose. Although, you know, they said after the Trojan War that this was going to reflect badly on Helen of Troy's Or rather that was Paris's dilemma, not Helen's dilemma. Right. But, you know, as far as Helen of Troy goes, it has not reflected badly on her. It didn't. I don't think things worked out that well for her either, though, to be honest. Well, not in the long run. That's that's certainly true. Well, here's what's happened. Ed has taken the Trumpist view of Afghanistan or the blob view, depending on how you look at it. For some reason, in this case, the blob and the Trumpists are aligned. Why is that, Ed? <laughs> Fighting words. I can see why <laughs> you two are enemies. No, I don't take either um, either view. Um, I think that is an unfair characterization. <laughs> I would say that the the problem with collapse of morale in the Afghan army really accelerated and became irreversible after Trump cut out the Afghan government from these so-called peace negotiations that were actually basically surrender negotiations for the Taliban. And after that, it became pretty hard to have any faith in the American presence there. And so all the reporting we've seen from the experts on the ground, from those who understand the Afghan army and where its weaknesses were and where its loyalties lay, show that that's when the real collapse occurred in the last sort of 18 months. I think um, where I'd agree with what I suppose is something approaching consensus, namely the blob, is Biden didn't have to inherit this shabby negotiation with the Taliban. He could have altered it. He he did have room for maneuver, as he's shown in so many other fronts of reversing Trump's legacy. 
he didn't need to inherit this particular piece of Trump's legacy. He had maneuver. But I don't, you know, I don't share any of the um, sort of premises of the blob over the last 20 years. I bitterly opposed the Iraq war at the time. And I never thought that nation building was possible in Afghanistan. Something more modest, like what Biden argued for in 2009, a very light footprint, a counterterrorism footprint that would keep the Taliban at bay, whilst also being far tougher with Pakistan, its sponsor, than the Taliban sponsor. I think that kind of position I, I would uh, I have always understood and would have liked to have seen Biden pick up again when he became president. But I think he felt obliged to, for some reason, to carry out what Trump negotiated. And we've got a kind of Trumpian chaotic you know, result to that. Well, some of those things I think are perfectly reasonable. So this is proving to be a little harder for me to argue with, but let me try. Uh, and then, Rosa, you can tell one of us that we're wrong. Here's what I think. One, I don't think he really views this as inheriting Trump's deal, although they've used that as a predicate. I think that Biden and Biden's team came in and they said, look, this has got to be over. Biden has been advocating more or less this for the past 12 years, uh, as that indicates. and. In other words, a counterterrorism mission, a mission which has effectively been completed. And he, he felt that he had to go. He postponed the deadline that Trump had. He then started almost immediately telling the Afghan government that this was going to happen. And they said, well, you can't evacuate everybody. The U.S. Embassy put out a, uh, an announcement that people should leave Afghanistan in April. Hasn't gotten a ton of attention, but they did. and. I think bringing this war to an end at this point is the best option if the option of bringing it to a war earlier is not available. And so that's what he did. It was a mess. And uh, I think a number of steps should have and could have been taken to make it less of a mess, including perhaps keeping Bagram Air Force Base open until everybody got out, keeping corridors available for people who wanted to evacuate until they got out. But having said that, the pronouncements of fully, you know, nine days ago when people started to say after a couple of days of of chaos in Kabul uh, that this is, you know, a great disaster that will bring the United States down and forever haunt Biden. I just think it's it's not true. You know, yesterday, I think they got out 10,000 people, 30,000 people have gotten out. They responded fairly quickly moving 6,000 troops in and working with the allies. They've managed to get a fairly good evacuation program going. And so at the end of the day, we will be out of a war that we should have been out of more than a decade ago. We will get our people out. It will be not as tidy as some people would like, but we will have gotten them out fairly efficiently after having adapted to the reality of the collapse of the Afghan army (laughs) and corrupt government. Yes. Rosa, were you making noises there? Yes, I was making noises of displeasure at your characterization of the situation, David. Well, OK, I'm, that's what I, that's what I was trying to get at. I was trying to get <laughs> to the point where I, I'm the outlier and rejected by everybody, which is what I've been comfortable with since elementary school. Go on. Well, look, you know, you're both part right. You're both part wrong. <laughs> How about oh, that? Can I do boy. that? Is that? Oh. oh, I know. I know. That's cheating. But look, I. I mean, I'm going to say the same thing I said in our in our last podcast, which is 
I do think Biden was right to say, hey, it's been 20 years. The notion that just six more months or just one more year is going to somehow make a huge difference is, is, is delusional. I think that's right. So I think that the ad, she agrees with me. But but I think there was no excuse for the sloppiness with which the withdrawal has been executed. It's clear. It appears to be clear that some combination of poor intelligence and carelessness and inattention led the White House inner circle to believe that this could all be done with you know, no horrifically awful consequences. And in fact, I don't think you can characterize what has been going on in Afghanistan in the last week or so as merely untidy. I think it, it, is, it, is, it is catastrophic for many, many Afghans. And, you know, as I said last week, you can think that going ahead with the withdrawal, you know, sometime this year was the right thing to do and still think that they bungled the, the timing, the logistics, et cetera, in a way that has caused tremendous and to some extent, not entirely, I agree, but, but to some significant extent, preventable human misery. I just don't think any of us should be sort of saying, oh, it's all fine. You know, it, it all worked out in the end. Uh, a little untidy, but it all worked out. In the end. It, it didn't all work out in the end. And some of this was avoidable, as I said. I, I, I think Biden is counting on the notion that by the time the even the midterm elections come along, no one will remember this anymore. Given the short memories Americans have, he may very well be right about that. It may very well be that this does not cost him or the Democratic Party politically in the long term. But that's not an excuse. I think that is probably an explanation in part for why the White House uh, seems to have so badly miscalculated what would happen. But it's certainly not an excuse. So, Ed, let me rephrase what Rosa just said there. What she said was that on the big strategic issue of getting out of Afghanistan, the one with lasting historical consequences that addressed the gravest mistakes the U.S. has made over the past 20 years, she agreed with me. But on the short-term tactical issue of extricating ourselves from Afghanistan, which no one will remember after mid-September. Except for the Afghans who may recall it. Well, the Afghans certainly will recall it. But, you know, I, I have to say, and maybe this is something you can respond to it. You know, the Taliban has been gathering strength in Afghanistan since they began their announced effort to take it back in 2004. Five years ago, they controlled 40 percent of Afghanistan. And as Rosa pointed out, no one thought that they were not going to take over. Taliban controlled Afghanistan is terrible. But no one is suggesting there was an alternative to that. I think that there is it's something in between having Taliban rule and the idea of building a nation state democracy from scratch in Afghanistan. And, you know, I, I do go back to that latter goal that the United States and its allies set for Afghanistan as being so utterly unattainable and so serenely ignorant of, of what it takes. And, you know, the parallels with Germany and Japan are so totally inappropriate. They were nation states when they were defeated. They were just very bad ones. Afghanistan has never been a nation state. And it's incredibly hard to fashion even 20 years as a short period of time. And so the Americans set themselves a, a, a very ambitious task that they were destined always to disappoint themselves with. 
and that they, even with the massive resources they applied, were never, were never going to um, succeed. Clearly, that was never realistic. But having um, you know, a client state that you protect from the Taliban, whilst at the same time, as I said earlier, getting to the root cause here with US relations with Pakistan, which we've never really addressed. We enable the military and increasingly sort of bearded military domination of Pakistan to continue. They are a military partner. They are a recipient of our aid. They are um, also a client state of China. I think that unless you're going to get that sort of sustained, larger regional initiative, then you know Afghanistan on its own is, is pretty hopeless. So there were other alternatives. They're not realistic right now. I guess you know my concern is that history is not going to stop just because we've withdrawn, because NATO's withdrawn from Afghanistan. Other shit's going to happen, and we're going to have to, you know, fashion a response to it. And you know, I want to know what the strategy is for Afghanistan, but also for the region. Rosa, what Ed is saying in terms of wanting to know the strategy seems like a perfectly reasonable thing to want to know. And to have a strategy that doesn't involve U.S. military on the ground also seems like a perfectly reasonable thing to expect at this point. I think where I have a little bit of a problem with what he said was the idea that we could have a client state there. We did have a client state there for, for, for quite some time, and they proved to be corrupt in the extreme and incompetent. And in fact, one of the big problems I think we'll see when we start investigating what happened with Afghanistan was that we decided to look the other way because it suited us. But that kind of thing only suits you until you get into this kind of situation. What do you think, Rosa? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think we were never likely to have as much control over events in Afghanistan as we thought. We were never likely to even have half or 25% as much control over events in Afghanistan as we ever thought. I do think the last 20 years have, have been a, you know, a long exercise in short-term thinking, hubris, ignorance, and carelessness on the part of the United States. I don't think it is our responsibility to fix Afghanistan or make it better. I don't think it is our responsibility to do anything other than maintain whatever capabilities we need, which, which I think could very well be over the horizon capabilities to defend, if necessary, against threats to the United States. I do think it was our responsibility not to sort of further compound the suffering and that we have already permitted. And I think we have, in fact, compounded it. I'm still just kind of shaking my head in, in horror and dismay at what a mess this is. I mean, and I'm also shaking my head in, in dismay at, at a lot of the rhetoric I've seen coming out of, of the White House on this. You know, I, I liked the response from the military actually a little bit better, which at least involved saying, yes, we, we, we screwed this up. We got some things wrong because the White House is still kind of going, no, you know, everything is unfolding as planned. You know, not quite. That's I'm being a little bit unfair, but somewhat close to that. And there is no universe in which it is reasonable to say that saying, OK, we're withdrawing everybody, then having to end up sending several thousand more troops back because the evacuations are such a mess. And then us saying, oh, actually, we might stay past August 31st and then having the Taliban say, no, you can't. It's a red line. What a mess. What a mess. And I do hope we don't get sucked back into some kind of conflict with the Taliban. But again, it's, it's just a mess. I would much rather see 
President Biden and and everyone else in the national security community coming out and saying we had bad intelligence and we are going to do a, a real postmortem of the decision making process here because clearly while we stand by the decision to withdraw clearly we screwed up the way we did it and we're really sorry i i mean and politicians don't like to do that but frankly i think it, they would actually find they would take less political heat if they occasionally did that rather than just doubling down yeah i think that's reasonable by the way there's a good piece today in the washington post by our friend greg sargent who talked to senator chris murphy and chris murphy said yes we have to investigate that but we should also investigate everything that went wrong in afghanistan we shouldn't limit the investigation to the talking points of critics of biden and i think both of the points are fair ones let me however switch things around a little bit ed and in keeping with the tenor of this episode pose an unfair question to you there's been some criticism from european allies the germans notably also also the british of the american handling of this the united states had 2500 troops there the united states footed a big chunk of the bill there for the past 20 years. Of course, there were 8,000 troops there, so 6,500 were not U.S. troops. If the Germans and the British felt so strongly about this and the necessity of remaining committed to the Afghans, why didn't they just send in their 2,500 troops and pick up the bill and take the lead on this thing going forward? Well, I think the answer to that is they they don't have the capability. They need um, U.S. air support and some of the reconnaissance intelligence surveillance capacity that they simply lack. I mean, I think if you look at it from their point of view, and I think there's a, you know, there's an element of overstatement and hype from some of the European critics of it. Um, but if you look at it from their point of view, the only time that Article 5 of NATO has ever been invoked was by European allies of the United States on 9-11 or the day after 9-11. And it was about Afghanistan, which was a far more core interest to the United States than it was to them. The attack had been on the United States, not on Europe. And so they were there shoulder to shoulder instantly, immediately, and were there side by side with the Americans in Afghanistan. And some countries like Australia, like Britain, lost proportionately the same amount of soldiers in the field as the United States did. So I think you've got to look at it from that perspective. I think also, you know, there was the G7 summit in Cornwall in June, whenever it was, in which Biden had apparently told fellow NATO heads that there would be security staying behind in Kabul to keep the embassies going and to protect them. And that then didn't materialize. Um, so I think there was a sense that at the, at the beginning of this, Europe was without question standing shoulder to shoulder, but at the end wasn't really consulted or taken seriously. I don't think Europe, as these individual nation states, is at all capable of replacing the United States in Afghanistan. This operation has to have those critical US components, particularly air power. It perhaps one consequence of this, and it might not be an unwelcome consequence on either side of the Atlantic, is that Europe sort of pushes more towards the autonomy, European military autonomy, in that direction that the French have trying to be have been trying to push. And I think that would, in a funny, ironic way, fulfill what American administrations of left and right have been asking for for a long time, which is for Europe to take more, well, to spend more and to take more responsibility for its defense. So if that is one unintended or unexpected outcome to this, it would be a good one. 
Rosa, do you think it's an unintended consequence of this? I wrote a piece, which neither of you have chosen to praise here in this podcast, but I, I'll, I'll take that as <laughs> implicit. A couple of days ago, in which I talked to several very senior administration officials about the rationale behind this. And their argument, their big picture argument is, we've been here for 20 years. It's time to get out, as Rosa has acknowledged. We have other priorities and we need to move on to them. And if we're going to have a stronger U.S., if the U.S. is truly going to be back, then instead of investing heavily in wars in, in the greater Middle East, then we have to invest in the United States. Some of that investment, cyber hardening, broadband, hardening our power systems, so forth, actually has a very strong direct security component. We have other places to focus. The vice president of the United States is currently in Asia. They're directly sending that message that they are shifting their focus strategically. It makes a lot of sense to move on to those things. And frankly, you know, another element of that is rethinking our alliances, strengthening them, but Moving away from a world in which the only way to solve a problem of a country, and there are a lot of countries with problems right now, Haiti, Ethiopia, Myanmar, the list goes on and on. You need the United States to take the lead. That doesn't sound like a bad worldview to me. Do you, do you have a problem with any element of it, Rosen? I got a little confused towards the end there, David. I, I, are you saying that, that because the U.S. remains indispensable to solving the problems of whatever other nation happens to have problems, that therefore we should rethink our alliances? No, no, I, I, for, no, that's, that's, that's not what I'm saying. I was trying to weave in Ed's point, and obviously I did it inartfully, but I, I, <laughs> I, I, I was essentially what I was trying to say is that we move in, we've got our focus, you know, I don't think it, there would be anything terrible if, you know, if British and the French decide they want to take on Afghanistan problem without us. You know, what's wrong with that? Yeah, no, no. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. The British and the French will do what the British and the French think it's in their interest to do. But what I do think is has been wrong has been while our allies, I'm sure they understand that, as you said, the U.S. needs to disentangle from Central Asia and the Middle East and turn its attention elsewhere. I'm sure they understand that. I'm sure they get that. I'm sure they generally think that's a good idea. But I think we have just broadcast a rather demoralizing message about our level of competence to them. And that, I think, will, will hurt us and will hurt our efforts anywhere in the world to build coalitions of allies, whether it's our traditional European allies or whether it's other countries, precisely because they're going to think, wait a second, can we count on them to plan with us? Can we count on them to do things in co coordination with us? Can we count on them not to screw things up in a way that leaves us kind of holding the bag and potentially facing political fallout? Then if we respond in the same way as the U.S., no matter what, we're now stuck. You know, I think we've put, I think we've put our European allies, particularly Britain, in a real spot with regard to Afghanistan. I'd be interested in, in Ed's thoughts on this. They either look like they're going along with our little fiasco here, or they end up being kind of the lonely ones staying in an increasingly vulnerable position in, a, in an even more untenable task than it has been in the last 20 years. And neither is a particularly good outcome for them. I have a feeling that our diplomats and friends in the White House are getting their wrists slapped pretty heavily by our European allies. 
Well, I think absolutely. You know, is it time for the U.S. to focus elsewhere? Yes. But the manner in which we have done this, I think, has, has not done anything whatsoever to strengthen any of our alliances. And, and on the contrary, it has probably caused disruption and weakened them to some extent. I don't mean to overstate that. I think they'll still be our friends, but we haven't made ourselves look good and we're not making them look good. Hi, I'm Chris Kotnor, the executive producer of Deep State Radio. I'd like to introduce you to our newest sponsor and a product I've become a big fan of called Fume. Fume is a Canadian-made, handcrafted, wooden essential oil inhaler. There are no electronics, harmful chemicals, or nicotine. Fume's cores are made from all natural super plants and help with relaxation, stress relief, quitting smoking or vaping, and much more. Visit www.breathefume.com slash deep state and take their quiz to find out which super plants are best for you. I took the quiz and I've been using the peppermint cores for the past week to help me with my focus and has really helped me. The best part is that for a limited time, listeners of Deep State Radio can enjoy 10% off their initial order. Visit www.breathe F-U-M dot com slash deep state. Thank you. Well, but let me pick up on that point. Ed, clearly Rosa has partially repudiated your argument and you must be (laughs) seething with anger underneath. And uh, picking up on that, perhaps you can join me in ganging up on her. She's arguing that we haven't made ourselves look good. And all I can say is, do you think they were expecting us to look good? After Vietnam or after the Trump years or after our 20-year track record in Afghanistan, we don't always look good. You know, we're the superpower, but we make mistakes. That They make mistakes. Everybody knows that. Don't you think this point that we made a mistake, whether it's an intelligence mistake or a planning mistake or an execution mistake or a diplomatic mistake, with regard to the point of getting out of Afghanistan, You can acknowledge that without somehow suggesting this is the end of the road for U.S. leadership. Oh, sure. I don't think this is the end of the road for U.S. leadership. And a lot on how we interpret this withdrawal depends on what's going to happen. The Biden administration was, I think, deservedly very heavily criticized for the bad planning of this withdrawal. And it's responded to some of that criticism. This mini Berlin airlift that we're seeing in Kabul you know, is happening pretty quickly and pretty impressively. And so I think that sort of indicates the role of the media in, in, you know, speaking to, well, holding powder account. And I think that Biden was stung or galvanized to some degree by that. And this is a much more promising situation where it's still very nerve-wracking. You know, the Taliban are not trustworthy interlocutors and they've got this deadline ticking. But I think, uh, you know, ugliness, there's been you know, this idea of the ugly American, and and you're right, Vietnam didn't permanently damage American power. And this, I don't think, is close to being the sort of level of a blow against American prestige or power as Vietnam was. So it's not that that concerns me. What concerns me is that I want to see a smart and constructive statesmanship sort of consistently coming out of the US. And I think if we want to see potential future allies and partners who are prepared to stand up with America, they're going to think twice, depending on the situation in the region of the world, 
when they remember the the withdrawal from Afghanistan, the suddenness of it, the fact that even America's closest allies were caught by surprise, even though they're really sort of impermeable alliances. I think that that's a tactical mistake. But I don't, I certainly don't agree that this is, um, this moment was the end of US power. I, I think there's, there's been a, quite a bit of hyperbole in the last few days. Well, indeed, Rosa, you know, I, I, first of all, I, I was obviously kidding around when I twisted your words there, and you can respond to that anyway, uh, that, that you can. But I think when you talk about statesmanship and you talk about a high degree, first of all, everybody remembers other instances where the United States did not consult sufficiently with our allies in the Obama administration, Bush administration, Trump administration, and on to now. They also remember instances where we've abandoned our allies on the ground, most recently under Trump with the Kurds. Obama didn't do any favor to anybody who was leaning in our direction in Syria, et cetera, et cetera. Having said that, in terms of statesmanship and commitment to alliances, this administration came in, recommitted to the alliances, connected to the alliances, seeks to fund major projects, recommitted to the priorities of the alliances, got back in the Paris Accord, got back into the World Health Organization, back into the international system, sought to get back into the Iran nuclear accord, is seeking to move us out of wars that have been unpopular largely across our alliances and focus on things that are of greater consequence. The bottom line tactical execution of one element of a 20-year war aside, that seems pretty statesmanlike to me. But it's not either or. I mean, of course, I, you know, I'm delighted that the Biden administration has done all of those things, and they have done all of those things. That, again, you know, I think, I think it's just let's be honest with ourselves. That doesn't mean that this wasn't a fiasco that has pissed off our allies and given them some doubts about our competence. That events in Afghanistan in the last week and a half um, have not helped contribute to that message of assurance to our allies. The various things that Biden has done previously were all good. Do I think that anybody's going to suddenly abandon us? No. That being said, I think, I think, you know, yes, your litany of, well, here are all the other times that the US has screwed things up or not consulted with allies and annoyed them. So why should this time be any different? Everybody will forgive us eventually. I mean, yeah, maybe so, right? But there is a little bit of, you know, straws and camel's backs here. I don't think that we should operate in the world on the assumption that we will always be forgiven and excused by everybody uh, because sooner or later we won't be. Are we at that point? Was this the tipping point? Probably not. But I don't think we should take away from this, oh, look, see, we've got lots of slack. Uh, I think we should take away from this. Let's try not to do that again. (laughs) And I'm sure that they are thinking that. I mean, I have not had conversations, I should say, with anybody inside the White House about this, but I'm sure that they are not sitting around in private congratulating themselves on a job well done. I'm sure that I would not want to be in any room with President Biden right now if I worked for him, because I'm sure that many of his senior national security aides have gotten a real dressing down of you know, how could you let this happen? And I'm sure that internally they are absolutely saying we screwed this up. Let's not do it again. How do we fix it? I just wish that they were a little bit more open to acknowledging that to both the American public and to our allies, uh, rather than simply saying those things in private, as I imagine they are doing. 
Yeah, I have to say, I have spoken to some of these people. You know these people. These are good people. They do feel pain at how this has unfolded and have worked tirelessly to try to fix it. And I think one of the undercovered stories of the past week is the degree to which they have successfully done that with 38,000 people having been flown out. And Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, was actually on the television as we were recording this podcast and said he expects that we'll be able to get any American who wants to get out of Afghanistan out prior to the August 31st deadline. Of course, that's which is so the the deadline that the Taliban has set for this in consultation with us. We'll see how that goes. But Ed, as we come to the conclusion of this lively discussion, one of the things that I wanted to uh, ask you is, what do you think is most courageous about my standing up to the journalistic (laughs) hive mind of Washington? I would dispute your characterization of us as Twitter enemies. (laughs) (laughs) I would think we had a couple of very mild, polite um, disagreements. And I tweeted your excellent piece. Thank you. Uh, I'm grateful for that. And we are not enemies of any sort. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's been interesting to see how, I mean, I'm not surprised at all by the shameless hypocrisy that the Republicans have um, indulged in in the last week. And we don't even need to discuss that. Never surprised by shameless hypocrisy of the Republicans in Congress. Yeah. And I would say it defies belief, but it doesn't defy belief. We're utterly, uh, it's utterly normalized. But the, the sort of divisions, the debates on the left or in the center and in the left, have been very interesting, you know, and I think you've, you've had a sort of, it's not just between moderates and people on the left, it's more complex than that. I suppose what, what I take away from it is that the passion in American politics about the division between Trump and not Trump still persists. And I think that it's been quite hard to have a foreign policy debate in the last week that's separate from the deep, deep sort of polarization that's in American politics. And I feel that, you know, in another time, if you were critical of President Biden, people would be fine. Okay, you're being critical of Biden. He deserves some brickbats on this, but not on that. But because he's the guy who replaced Trump, people are far more defensive of him than I think they need to be. And I'm not saying that of you, David. I'm saying I'm making that as a more general observation. Yeah, no, no, I don't feel that way. You know, in fact, this is a, I'll, I'll tell you, absolutely, honestly, very unusual for me to be in a position where so many people that I like and admire have a position that's so different from mine. And in this particular case, mine is completely aligned with the Biden administration. I'm happy to give you five areas where I'm not completely aligned with the Biden administration. Having said that, despite the fact that I'm deeply insecure about everything in my life, I feel completely confident that you know my, my view is justified here based on, you know, my reading of the facts. So we end up with that. But Rosa, you know, Ed makes a good point here. And it goes to your last point, which is to say, in a Washington that is so hyper-polarized, where people are willing to ignore facts in order to fight, it's kind of politically impossible to acknowledge an error. It's very, very difficult in this kind of environment to have a serious discussion. I don't agree. As you said, you know, the irony here is that many of the people who are most mad at Biden right now uh, are his own base, his own party. And I think that you're never going to convince the Trumpies of anything. 
you're never going to convince his supporters of anything. But being willing to be candid and take responsibility for some for miscalculating in a way that is hurting people, I think that would make a difference to folks within the Democratic Party. I agree with you. I honestly think they could have been more introspective in their response to this, and I don't think it would have done that much damage. But I understand why people on the political side have made the calculus that they have. I also think, by the way, the most important steps the administration is going to take on Afghanistan are ones that haven't happened yet. And they have to do with how do you manage the remainder of this evacuation? How do you move to the the greater strategy that Ed was talking about? How do you articulate that strategy? How do you execute it? What do you do to prove that you have moved beyond the errors of the past 20 years and on to something much more constructive? And if an infrastructure bill is passed, and if the Build Back Better package is passed, and if uh, at some point they find a way back into the Iran deal, and if they uh, find a way to shift and address some of the big issues confronting us in Asia. And if at the end of four years of the first term of the Biden administration, people look at it and say they did generally well, my belief is that this tactical failure around this one issue, even though it has significant human consequences, is not going to be the thing that's going to define how people look at this administration or this period. We shall see. And when, you know, Corey and David are back, we can gang up on them, too. And I can twist their words, as I have done uh, Ed's and Rose's here for entertainment purposes only. You're both brilliant. And I can't think of any other people I would rather discuss this with. So I thank you, Ed. And I thank you, Rosa. And I thank you, everybody who is listening. And I encourage you to go to the dsrnetwork.com to find out what else we've got coming up here in the waning days of the summer. I expect in the early part of September, we'll announce a kind of broader array of new programming tied to the big issues of the moment. And that's very exciting for us. We, uh, we hope you'll keep following us because I, I think the conversations are good. So thanks guys. And uh, by the way, COVID's in a bad way. We'll talk about that some more. Take care of yourselves, Uh, everybody. Be safe. Bye-bye.